Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. Between the two of us, we have over 50 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and finding a way to check it out. And on today's episode, it's Recap. It's the end of the year. We just want to take a look back at what's happened over the past year, what we've seen in brewing, what we've done in brewing, what we feel about brewing. It's time to get in touch with the past. Yeah, I think that that's a great idea. The uh, ghost of Christmas beer's past. <laughs> All right. But first, a message from our sponsors. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome back, and before we kick things off by looking backwards, we got a couple announcements to make. And don't forget our end-of-the-year race to sanity and catching up on all of our episodes because we took too much vacation in the earlier part of the year uh, is almost over with. We're finally catching up. <laughs> yeah. Somebody on Facebook today asked me why we were putting out so many episodes all of a sudden, and I assured them it wasn't by choice. <laughs> yeah, no, it's called, uh, ooh. Wait, we owe our sponsors something, and we also yeah. owe you something. So, end of the year, we're racing, we're getting finished. Uh, I think by the time you hear this, you will have heard us talking with John Hall at All About Beer, Denny and I talking about oxygen. There may even be a Russian Imperial Stout episode or two in there. We're getting this done. <laughs> yeah, so uh, if you didn't think you had anything to do over the holidays, you were wrong. Listen to us, because it's better than arguing with Uncle Phil. <laughs> yeah right <laughs> all right and don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us review on apple Podcasts. you can click the aha or byo links on the website and by going to patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause which for this tiny little last bit of the year is the national disaster search dog foundation these great people rescue dogs and teach them to be uh, disaster search dogs uh, during earthquakes, uh, just various disasters that happen where you got to search for people. They take these little doggies and they teach them how to do it. Uh, your chance to contribute to help them out is almost over. So go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and please send us a few bucks that we can pass along to them. And after the first of the year, we'll be announcing the totals for both of our charities last year. Yay. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We are going to get out of here for the moment, and when we come back, we will be reflecting on the last year, what's happened, what we've done, and where things might be going. But I guess that's the future, huh? Stick around. We'll be right back. 
Weist Fourth Quarter Legacy Curation features two legendary strains for autumn brewing, 1968 London ESB Ale and 1728 Scottish Ale. These yeast strains were isolated 30 years ago for our culture collection and continue to be brewmaster's top choices for traditional multi-European ales today. Both are regarded for their high flocculation and suitability for strong and seasonal specialty styles like double IPAs, smoked and barrel-aged beers, British bitters, barley wine, and more. Completing this curation are two limited-release lager favorites, 2000 Boudvar Lager and 2001 Pilsner Urkel H Strain. Available now through the end of December, Boudvar Lager delivers rich maltiness and subtle fruit notes while allowing hop character to come through in Czech lagers and German Helles styles. The Pilsner Urkel Strain produces mild floral aromas and a clean, dry palate and full mouthfeel for Czech lagers and Bohemian-style Pilsners. Catch up on our latest blog posts and learn more about this release at yeastlab.com. The ultimate all-in-one electric home brewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in homebrewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves workflow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grandfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grandfather.com. done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. So come on in. Come on in, just come on in, and pour yourself a beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings, beer, 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 beer. Hey everybody, welcome back. And it is time for us to take a look back at what last year was all about. And one of the big things in the homebrewing world were some big changes coming up with HomebrewCon for next year. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the first thing to do is just look back at this year's HomebrewCon. So this was what? This was both of our first HomebrewCons after COVID, right? Right. Yep. So And I came home with COVID. (laughs) That's true. You did. (laughs) I did. So somehow you did and I didn't. I'll take it. And I was out more than you. Um, I think it was maybe you're, you're just much more up and close and personal with people than I am. Yeah, that, that, that's it. Yeah, it's <laughs> the fact that I kissed everybody I saw. Oh, uh, Denny. Um, but this year's HomebrewCon was at San Diego. And, I mean, I thought it was a great party, but there was also some things in there that were sort of distressing to me. And I think they were indicative of what's going on with both the brewing industry and with homebrew. So this year's San Diego HomebrewCon – well, the last San Diego HomebrewCon we'd had was like six years ago. 
Yeah, that's a good guess. And it was almost 4,000 people, if not over 4,000 people. Uh, it was a big party, and it, it had a lot of fun, a lot of energy, a lot of upswing to, to the whole thing. Uh, this year, what, I think the Homebrew Cons came in like 1,500, 1,800 people? I, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, so a much smaller party, and it felt like it in a lot of ways. Now, there are some things that were good about that, but there were also other things that felt like sort of distressing, like we were in smaller spaces, everybody was kind of crammed together, uh, particularly for the club night. Um, but <laughs> yeah, That's probably where I got COVID. Probably, but then again, I was there longer than you. <laughs> yeah. um, but what I thought was just weird was uh, it felt like there was lower energy. Yeah, did you catch that? Yeah, it, it really did. And I'm not sure exactly why, uh, you know, I, I don't know that we'll ever really be able to figure it out, but at least that's what it felt like to me. Yeah. But now at the same time, having said that, it's still great to see the community there. It was great to have all that time talking and enjoying the, you know, both the beer and the people and, and just the chance to learn. So I'm really, really grateful for that, but it did really feel like a dramatic shift. And then, of course, the whole time during the conference, everybody's going, where's the next one? Where's the next one? Has anybody said? Because in years past, the next conference was announced in the program. It was announced right. in a big sign when you went to check in. It was announced everywhere. And this year, crickets until we got to towards the end. But, it, you know, the ultimate upshot, if you hadn't heard, was that next year's HomebrewCon will be at GABF. Right, so right. sort of reversing the history and the fortunes of, of this whole thing where GABF started at HomebrewCon, or the, the, at the time, the what, the Homebrewers Conference. Um, National Homebrew Conference, yeah. Yep. Uh, so it'll be interesting for me to see this looking forward because some of this is like it's where the industry is going. We're seeing consolidation on a lot of this effort. But it'll be interesting to see how we can pull that event off without homebrewers getting lost in the midst of a bunch of crazy pants revelry. Yeah. The, the AHA hasn't really said anything about how it's going to work. You know, if it's going to be concurrent with GABF before, after, um, you know, if it's going to be a one-time thing or if this is going to be the pattern for the future, uh, there are a lot of unknowns about it. Um, I, I've been to GABF and I just was not a huge fan. And I know that that might be a blasphemy to many people, but for, for me, it was just too big. And maybe it ties in with the attitude that uh, we're seeing that has seen beer fests in general kind of uh, slow down. I, I don't know, but, uh, you know, I'm reserving judgment until I hear exactly what they're going to do. Uh, I'll, I'll just say at this point, uh, I, I have concerns, but that doesn't mean that they're valid concerns or that they uh, they won't be dealt with in some way. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, to your point, things are changing. We got to get used to it. So uh, hopefully, hopefully, this is a chance that we see the energy pick back up. Yeah, that, that's my main concern. Is I give less. I give less of a damn about the conference as a big time event and more about what the conference being a big time event says about the hobby. Yeah, right. And as we all know, uh, you know, the numbers of homebrewers are down from what they were the last years, like, you know, last five, 10 years. Um, and you know, we've seen homebrew stores closing because of that, uh, all kinds of things. So it's going to be interesting to see if even if the numbers are down still, and that's not to say that they will be, they might start to come back, but it'll be interesting to see how the, the remaining people feel about the whole thing. Yep. And I will remind everybody that this past year I was awarded the HA Governing Committee Recognition Award, which I can see right behind the microphone here. And Very good. Yeah, uh, I, I hung it up. Um, <laughs> but after that win, uh, or after, not really the win, but after being awarded the award, uh, didn't really get a chance to give a speech because it was a surprise. The only thing I knew was Denny going, you have to be at this meeting. You have to be at this meeting. <laughs> That's right. You know why he did that? Because he knows I'm a squirrel and I wander. Right. 
That's right. Well, especially for that particular meeting, Drew often uh, has other things to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm usually off in my own head. Um, but I, I was there at that meeting and didn't get a chance to speak because, of course, it was an impromptu off the cuff. And I wrote a long blog post that's on experimentalbrew.com. I'll include it in the show notes, all about my reactions, but also very importantly, capturing my feelings about the hobby, uh, where we are, where we've been, why I like doing this and why I feel like we should spend more time getting more people to do it. And when I won mine the year before, Drew, uh, I didn't get to make a speech either, but uh, I wasn't gracious enough to write anything like he did. <laughs> uh, Denny. <laughs> well, honestly, though, I think you'd agree with most of what, what I wrote anyway. Oh, yeah, completely. Sure. I always do agree with you, right? <laughs> Not when we're writing together. Uh, uh, if only people saw what the writing process was like between the two of us. Oh, man. Uh, oh, well, we, we've made it. We've got three out there, and, uh, you know, we're still speaking to each other. There you go. All right. So from AHA HomebrewCon, uh, the other thing out there is Denny and I both brew on all-in-one systems. All-in-one systems have become kind of a very popular way of uh, brewing. They've kind of, I don't know, I would almost say they've become the, the grown-ups version of brewing a bag. Well, I think that they've probably become the most popular way to brew. I mean, when you see people online saying, oh, I want to get into brewing, what equipment do I need? People recommend all-in-ones all the time. Um, and as you and I both know, there's a lot of really good things about brewing on an all-in-one system. Uh, no matter which one you use, you know, it's generally going to be easy to use, easy to clean up. Uh, you'll be able to make repeatable beers because of the precision built into the system. And that's great. I, I love it. Uh, having brewed with the uh, converted keg kettle, propane burner, cooler, et cetera, et cetera, for many years, I just could not imagine going back to that. I, I would guess that you're probably about the same. Yeah, although I will admit to getting the occasional twinge of nostalgia for brewing on my stovetop with a, with a kettle with a copper ring on the bottom of it. But, really? Yeah, but uh, I get that twinge of nostalgia. And then it very quickly fades away into the matters of practicality. <laughs> yeah, you uh, you regain your senses and uh, and come back to earth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I would say though that the all-in-one does have a downside to it, and that's especially for these new brewers who are going out and getting one, and that that's because an all-in-one doesn't teach you how to brew beer. Uh, it, it allows you to brew beer, uh, but it doesn't teach you how to do that. And many of the questions that I see popping up online r relate to that. People who have gone out and spent, you know, three, five, six hundred, a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars on all this equipment and have no idea what to do with it. Um, or when something goes wrong, they have no idea how to cope with it. Uh, they get, say, low OGs because they haven't learned that you have to adjust any recipe to the efficiency of your system. Um, so th the equipment does not make the beer in a vacuum, so to speak. You have to understand the process and know what you're doing. And for that, brewing books are great. Uh, a lot of people like YouTube. I hear many people say, oh, you know, I'm a visual person. I just can't read. That's fine. But keep in mind that generally a homebrew book will be vetted uh, by an editor or someone like that. And a YouTube video is just some guy who may or may not know what he's talking about giving you his opinion. So, you know. Which, to I would be fair, isn't all that different than being at a homebrew club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true, you know. Um but I would say to all of you new brewers that if you are getting an all-in-one or or not, even if you're just going to try and brew on your stovetop or something like that, go out and buy yourself a copy of John Palmer's 4th edition of How to Brew. Read through it. 
At first, it's not going to make any sense. My first homebrewing book made no sense to me when I first read it. And I was reading about things, you know, like, like malts and stuff like that. But keep at it. Go back through it. Reread sections, especially as you brew, to try and get a handle on not only what to do, but why you do it and how it works. Uh, like I said, an all-in-one is a great, great piece of equipment to help you brew, but it's not going to brew for you. That's up to you to gain the knowledge. In some ways, this reminds me of that old supposedly in some ways, this reminds me of that old supposedly Picasso quote about, you know, in order to make a Cubist painting, first you have to draw the most realistic style, uh, still life. Yeah, but right. But I mean, it's funny because I don't think this is a problem inherent necessarily to all-in-ones. I think this is a problem with how some people get into hobbies. Uh, yeah, I agree. But with all-in-ones, so many people see them as like, Making the beer for you because it's so easy. That the issues with an all-in-one are no different than the issues we faced with our coolers and propane burners and all that kind of stuff. But the expectation, I believe, is different. Uh, you know, with our stuff, we expected to have to go through that learning curve uh, and and actually kind of looked forward to it. With an all-in-one, too often people buy them because they think, oh, I just dump all this stuff in and it'll make beer for me. And that's just not the way it works. Well, and I mean, to be truthful, maybe part of the reason why you're seeing that more is the price point difference. Um, Because where I always used to see this was you always have those people who were very enthusiastic about getting into a hobby and they would go spend, yeah, like whatever it was, like a 1000 to $2,000 on a brand new more beer system or you know, uh, uh, any of the fancier big three-tier systems that there used to be, right? But those were right. always super expensive, and the, that was always the guys who were, I'm, I've got money to burn. I'm going to get into the high end of this hobby immediately. Why spend money on the cheap side? Um, I think with the all-ones being cheaper and more approachable, maybe we see more of that. Yeah, that's, that's definitely possible. Um, and, you know, being cheaper, uh, just be careful. Very often you get what you pay for. So maybe sometimes spending a bit more would be a good thing, uh, to, to have a more trouble free experience. Yeah. But again, I mean, for us, the things that's nice about the all in ones is we can let them do all the work that we already know how to do. <laughs> yeah. Right. And walk away and, and still continue to make beer without having to sit there and futz over our temperature. Um, yeah, you know, man, I know you've seen it too. People going, well, is using an all-in-one like cheating? Mm-hmm. And it's like, cheating? What? What's cheating? I mean, number one, cheating in a hobby, it gets to be defined by the person who is performing the hobby, not by someone who's watching them. And Unless they're cheating. <laughs> well, maybe. Um, and, and, and number two, I forgot number two. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll throw in my, in my bit here while you think about okay. what number two was, which is that people will always say that anything that adds automation or supposedly quote unquote makes it easy, makes it not the real version of it. But you got to ask yourself, where does that line set? Yeah. Cause we heard that with people complaining about like the Pico brewers back in the day. That's not brewing. Right. You know, yeah. You hear people say extracts, not brewing. Uh, you hear people say, you know, this isn't brewing. That's not brewing. You've you got to decoct in order to really be a brewer or something like that. <laughs> to which point the question is then like, is it not brewing if you don't grow your own hops? Is it not brewing if you don't make your own malt? Yeah. Ultimately, at the end of the day, hobbies are about satisfaction. And where you're getting your satisfaction and where you draw that line is completely up to you. Right. And just you because know, the line's there for you doesn't mean that line is there for everybody else. That is exactly right. Uh, and, and if you'll recall, we once did a story about uh, making your own water so that uh, you could uh, brew totally from scratch. Oh, we caught so much crap about that one. Oh, boy, did we ever. <laughs> we'll have to do it again. I know, right? Woo! <laughs> yeah, it turns, out, uh, it turns out, by the way, folks, there are some people out there who have no sense of humor about an April Fool's episode. None. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> oh, there's a look back for you. Yep. 
All right. Yeah. By the way, we should probably replay that episode once just to see if we get the same problems. <laughs> yeah. Well, we got April first coming up in a few months. There you go. All right. Uh, so we go from all in ones to oxygen, and ironic that we have this in here because uh, we just had an episode on oxygen. Yeah, and that was kind of what uh, inspired me to put this on the list, along with uh, with questions i see online all the time a lot of these things come from stuff that i see online people are really into oxygen both in a positive and negative sense these days hey look i'm Uh, a big believer in oxygen it keeps me alive (laughs) i wouldn't want to breathe anything else with with the rise in popularity of the new england ipa and the fact that oxygen can have such a deleterious effect on that particular style, not to mention others, uh, you have seen a lot more talk about uh, oxygen and how to avoid uh, having oxidized beer and stuff like that. And that's, that is all very well and good. It's important, very much so. But most of that conversation only, um, most of that conversation only takes into account the cold side, uh, fermentation, uh, packaging, stuff like that. And that's very uh, important. What it doesn't do, though, is take into the account the effects of oxygen on the hot side. Now, I'm not talking here about what is traditionally known as hot side aeration, HSA, the devil, that makes your beer taste like cardboard or gives it exaggerated caramel flavors. I'm talking about things like oxygen entrained in your mash. And many of the same people who go to great lengths to avoid oxygen on the cold side don't even want to hear about something like an oxidized mash uh, resulting in reduced malt character or something like that. Because so many people have said to them, HSA is a myth. Well, people, this is not quite the same thing. Now, how big a problem it is and what you care to do about it is completely up to you to decide. Uh, for me, I recognize it's a problem. I take what I think are reasonable, easy steps to avoid it, things like not splashing, stuff like that. I don't go as far as a lot of people and say, like, de-aerating my mash water or underletting the mash or something like that, although I'm considering maybe doing that. Um, But, you know, the main point to realize is that it is entirely possible to oxidize your beer while it's still in the mash, and that it will have an effect. And like I said, you know, how bad an effect is up to you to decide, and what you want to do about it is up to you to decide. By the way, I do want to note that one of the things I think is interesting is just how far uh, how far we've come on that whole Lodo conversation, where, and we talked a little bit about it in the in the auction thing. I think when Lodo first started to hit, like at least in the homebrew discussion side, there was a lot of gnashing of teeth, a lot of conflicts right. of personalities, right. uh, and sometimes messages getting lost in the middle of all that. Um, but I think the biggest thing I've, that I've seen is the the less religious attitude about Lodo and low dissolved oxygen processes and practices, and the idea that you have to you have to accept all of this as gospel truth. And if you don't do any of this, <laughs> any of the ritual perfectly step by step, then all of it is for naught, and you're a worthless human being. Right. Well, and the the message was uh, originally presented in kind of a way that made it sound like if you're not doing this, then your beer just absolutely sucks, and I, I don't even want to talk to you. Uh, you know. Anyway, that's that's even farther in the past than we're going. Uh, it's it's just that in the last year or so, I have seen awareness of the effects of oxygen become a really, really prevalent topic in the homebrew world, as well it should. But people need to realize that uh, that can happen throughout the brewing process and not just during fermentation. Yep, exactly. But at the same time, as with all things brewing, there's 50 ways to do something, 100 ways to get there, and only 90% of them make a difference. (laughs) If that many. Yeah, I would say 10, but, you know, that's me. All right. 
So, on to one of your favorite topics, because I know you get annoyed when people talk about it. <laughs> Pressure fermentation? I don't know if I get annoyed. Well, okay, I get annoyed. <laughs> I, every time somebody says something about pressure fermentation, I feel your eyes roll from a thousand miles away. Yeah, right. Well, and again, pressure fermentation is not necessarily a bad thing in any way, uh, especially when it's used correctly. But what I'm seeing are, again, people not knowing, not understanding about pressure fermentation but wanting to try it anyway, going out and buying fermenters that are pressure capable and saying, okay, what kind of pressure should I ferment my triple under? It's like, no, that, that's the wrong style for it. They say, what kind of pressure should I use? Well, one of the reasons I never got into it is because I got to have a conversation with Chris White about it. And uh, this is after seeing some data he presented from experiments done by uh, John Blickman and I don't know, maybe Palmer was in on it too. Uh, and it, what this data showed was that different yeasts need different pressures and different temperatures to work at under pressure fermentation. And I decided for me it was a little bit too finicky to, to worry about. On the other hand, there are a lot of people out there who didn't receive that information and they're just doing pressure fermentation because it means they can ferment a lager at 70 degrees in four days. Um, and, you know, cool. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. I don't need to ferment that quickly. Uh, I don't want to go through the process of figuring out what yeast needs what pressure at what temperature. Uh, and a lot of people apparently don't bother with that. And then they end up with putting questions on Facebook like, why isn't my beer fermenting? And it's because they put like 30 PSI on it from day one. Uh, you know, so pressure fermentation has become a really, really big thing for better or worse. People seem to like the effects of it. Um, have, you, have you ever tried it? I tried it once, but it's, it's a little more fiddly than I, than I care for. And again, to your point, it doesn't match my goals. All right. Yeah. Think about how, Think about how often the beers I'm brewing are things like, a, you know, a Saison, a Mild, a Bitter, a Pale Ale. None of those benefit from pressure fermentation in the way that a lager does. Yeah, right. You hear that one of the big pluses of pressure fermentation is uh, a reduction of esters in the beer. Why would you want reduced esters in a Saison or a Triple? Mm-hmm. Well, and again, I think the other one is that you have people talking about, oh, well, you know, it allows you to ferment warmer, right? That's exactly what you were just saying earlier. Uh, you and I both have glycol-chilled fermenters. We don't need to worry about warmth. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's us. For other people, it may be more of a of an issue. I don't know if pressure fermentation is necessarily always the answer to that problem. Right. So, again, I think this goes in line with some of what you were saying about with both oxygen, the paranoia about oxygen, and about all-in-ones which is that don't just glom on to techniques because people talk about techniques. Yeah. Adopt techniques because they make sense for what you're trying to do. So the real key in all of these things, uh, whether it's an all in one, whether you're looking at oxygen, whether you're looking at pressure fermentation, the key is to understand how and why they work and utilize that to your advantage. There you go. And everybody say hi to Burton. Hi, Britain. Now shut up. <laughs> Meanwhile, my old man Sammy is uh, snoring about six feet to my right. <laughs> yeah, he's a good boy. Yeah, fortunately, Chihuahua's snoring harder to pick up on a microphone. <laughs> yeah, right. Then the Great Pyrenees barking outside the door. Yep. All right. And so the next one I wanted to talk about was the other thing I've seen, and maybe this is just where I'm reading, where I'm playing around with the people I'm talking to of brewing, is I'm noticing sort of a hype die off around Quike. Uh, people remember like three years ago, four years ago, suddenly like Quike was the, the, the hot new thing, literally the hot new thing. Oh, yeah. I, I remember some article that said it was going to change the brewing world. <laughs> well, but I mean, truthfully... It could, it, it couldn't, 
but truthfully, it can change the brewing world. I mean, it does open up some some room. I think what's changed is it was literally the 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 hot new technique, the hot new thing to use, and people used it. We're using it everywhere. Um, I'm not seeing as much discussion about it as I used to. Like I'm not seeing yeah. I'm not seeing people be as yeah super quite obsessive and super quite forward and quite can do all this uh, as they were before. And it's sort of fallen back into the realm of here's another tool in the toolkit. Exactly, which is the way it should be. Uh, for a while there, it was the answer to every question and every problem. And uh, I think people discovered that there are things that it can do well and things that it may not do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and like you say, then it just becomes another tool in the toolbox for when you need what it does. Right, and so like good example is I've had a couple of uh, uh, homebrewed versions of hazy IPAs, Denny's favorite style that people in the club did with Quark and that's what they used. And it plays well, like particularly like using something like one of the Voss strains, because those are kind of a sour orange character and it works well against that hop character that you get in hazy IPA. But what I'm not seeing as much of is I'm not seeing as many people try and go, look, I found an ultra clean Quark, which would be a wonderful end goal. Um, but I found an ultra queen clean Quark. And so therefore I made myself a hot, Fermented lager at 97 degrees. Isn't it wonderful? I'm not seeing as much of that talk. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and people who do that will still swear that it makes great lagers. And all I can say is I have yet to have one. I've had a couple that get close, but they still feel more like a slightly belgian cream ale. Yeah, right. That's a good way to put it, man. Yep. Um, but I'm not seeing as much quite... Uh, uh, cheerleading, but I do see people still using it. It's just now it's much more in line with this is a tool I have. So that's uh, that's another thing I've noticed. But I will say also that I think is really great. Go check out Sugar Creek Malting. You know, we've had them on the podcast before to talk about malted corn. And look at all the malts that he's making now because he's kind of gone into a niche world of making farmhouse-style malts including some malts that would be used with something like a quark. Oh, very interesting. So uh, I do at least like the fact that there is kind of a niche out there of people who are exploring how to use these things in a more traditional fashion. Uh, but there we go. Yeah, quark definitely has its place. Uh, it is simply doesn't appear to be the answer to every question that people were saying it was a couple years ago. There you go. All right, and lastly, going from something old school yet new to something old school and yet new. Because um, <laughs> I will say one thing I've definitely, definitely noticed, people have talked for years at the commercial level like, oh, you know, it's going to be the time of loggers. And we've definitely seen, at least for me and I think for you too, a rise in the number of commercially available craft loggers. Oh, Yeah. Um, Definitely, man. I mean, 25 years ago when I started getting into craft beer, or maybe 30 years ago, uh, the story was nobody's making craft loggers because it ties up the equipment for too long and they're too expensive to make and most people don't want them anyway. And boy, has that thinking changed. Yep. And I not only seeing that at the commercial level, but now I'm seeing more and more of it available at the homebrew level. I'm seeing more homebrewers play around with making a good lager, right? Yeah. And whether it's like me doing things that are sort of either lager adjacent, like my beloved cream ales or doing things like my Sammy Claus or the winter lager that I'm brewing. Yeah. Seeing things like that. But I'm also seeing a lot of people really get out there and try and tackle, you know, how do I make a, bohemian or german style pilsner yeah Ooh, what's this italian pilsner thing let's do that you know starting to see more and more that the home level and it seems like it's following that natural cycle that everybody kind of jokes about which is you get into beer by drinking lager and then you get into craft beer by drinking pale ales and ipas and then you go all squirrely for a good long while maybe you get into smoked beers maybe you get into a lot of belgians and then suddenly somewhere along the way you find out the other end you know what i really want a nice lager <laughs> yeah, man, uh, I will tell you that uh, German pills accounts for a pretty good percentage of what I normally brew. I mean, 
around here in general, it's going to be German Pills, Triple, and West Coast IPA. Um, and probably West Coast IPA is going to be the majority of it. And uh, then German Pills and Triple are going to be the rest of it. And I never expected when I started brewing that I would be making lagers this frequently or this easily because as, as the lagers have become more popular, uh, techniques and, and equipment have evolved to make them easier to brew. And whether that's something like pressure fermentation or whether it's glycol chillers uh, for the home brewer or whatever, um, lagers are definitely on the target. Well, and I think it's also important to capture that there's a better understanding of how lager yeast works and how lagering should be done. There's some movement away from the sort of ultra classical, you need 40 days to make a lager you know, right. sort, of, sort of belief. And I think some of that's made loggers much more practical. Right. Yeah. So, but yeah, I'm happy to see loggers being around again. Earlier today, I was at uh, the Wild Parrot, and John's got 10 beers on tap and six of them are loggers. Wow. Yeah. That's really remarkable. Yeah. So there you go. All right. So before we get out of here, uh, I thought we would just do a real quick reminder to everybody out there who's getting a new brew kit or somebody who's got a brew kit and hasn't used it in a while or somebody who, you know, really just wants to know what to do. Uh, the Denny and Drew Guide to Quickly Making Better Beer. And I was just going to say right now, the two things that you, that you need to do, remove the chlorine from your water and have healthy, vital yeast because that will yep. give you a lot of sins. Yep, those are the two biggies. Uh, if you're lucky like me, you don't have to worry about getting the chlorine out. But having healthy, vital yeast is really the key to making great beer. Uh, you know, we have both gone to using the shaken, not stirred method, as opposed to using the stir plate crash decant method, because we find that the yeast comes out a lot healthier and ready to go when you're using the shaken, not stirred method. Or in my case, also a lot of dried yeast. Yeah, right. And dry, yeah, dry yeast is a very viable alternative. And that's a trend that has really, really been picking up. There are more strains of dry yeast out there. More people are using them. There are a lot of people who don't even use anything but dry yeast these days. So that's a that's a great uh, alternative if there is a yeast strain that fits what you want to brew. There you go. All right. So how about we do something other than beer and get out of here? That's a great idea. We'll be right back to do that. With Yakima Chief Hops, it's more than a pack of hops. It's supporting family farms. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned hop supplier whose mission is to connect hop growers and brewers. Yakima Chief Hops is proud to have an established return-to-grower program which redistributes an average of 75% of their business earnings back to the family farms who grow the hops in your beer. Where you buy your ingredients matters, and with Yakima Chief Hops, it's more than a pack of hops. Learn more at yakimachief.com slash return dash growers. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Give or receive an American Homebrewers Association membership by December 31st and select a free brewing book of your choice. This holiday season, purchase one-year membership and choose from 60 different beer and brewing books to meet your goals. Why I suggest simple homebrewing? Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental for details. Hurry, this offer expires December 31st. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Airstill Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch 2-in-1 distillation system operates in either pot still or reflex mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug and play. The Airstill Pro column cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. The Still Spirits Airstill Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. 
learn more about the Air Still Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. everybody drew has a something other for you before we get out of here yep so real quick and no surprise i like books i like reading i also like audiobooks as you all know very well and just literally yesterday i finished up listening to one of the new books from john scalzi john scalzi is probably one of america's better known and more prolific uh science fiction writers or i think today it's no longer science fiction it's speculative fiction uh, and he wrote a book. He's got a lot of really great books. If you ever want a really good Heinlein book, not written by Heinlein or Heinlein, however you want to say his name, uh, go read Old Man War, uh, Old Man's War by John Scalzi. It was one of his first, and it's a great book and a little series. But in this particular case, I'm going to recommend his newest one because he does a lot of one-off type books. Uh, I think I may have talked about the Kaiju Preservation Society before on the podcast. Uh, but this one is a new one-off book called Starter Villain. And the audiobook is narrated like a lot of John Scalzi books of recent vintages by Will Wheaton. Uh, Will Wheaton now has his voice permanently assigned to me whenever I read Scalzi. Uh, but Starter Villain is all about this sort of hapless guy named Charlie who is living in his hometown trying to scrape together enough money to buy the pub from the guy who's retiring from it, but he has no job except for being a substitute teacher. He's a former business writer, yada, 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 divorced, living in his father's home after his father passed away, only to find out that his uncle has died. And his uncle has left him an inheritance. But it turns out his uncle is a reclusive billionaire who actually is a villain. (laughs) With... Talking cats, angry unionist dolphins, and an absolutely 100% complete volcano lair on an island. That sounds wild. Oh, it is. It is. The thing I like with the Scalzi one-offs is that he typically brings a lot of humor into it. Uh, It's light. It's frothy. It's fun. And Will Wheaton narrating the audiobook also adds a sense of performance to it because Will Wheaton's a pretty good actor. And this one, it's just great because it's all about getting involved as a starter villain and how Charlie tries to navigate the world of villainy without letting it change him too much. And can he survive? (laughs) So he's only kind of like a partial villain. Yeah. Well, they literally call him a starter villain. Like, you're not even a real villain. Uh, so is, is that like is that like being a little bit pregnant? Kind of, right? Uh, but no, Starter Villain by John Scalzi. Uh, like I said, I did the audiobook version narrated by Will Wheaton. It is a fun, lightweight, frothy, speculative read. Uh, and like I said, if you want something sort of amusing for the holidays, trust me, wait until you at least get to the dolphins and learn just how bad the dolphins' language are. And how close they are to the Wobblies. <laughs> oh, that's great, man. <laughs> so there you go. That's your something other. Let's go. All right. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing for another year. We'll be back for one more year in January. Catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on X, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. You can find Drew on the Homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrewing channel. 
I'll be hanging around the AHA discussion forum. Uh, I'll be hanging out on Facebook. I'll be in the uh, brew house at the beer garden. Uh, I'm kind of like all over the place. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And if you want to get a hold of us each individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can send us a text or a voicemail at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.